President, we have a national emergency. This is one of the things that we can shoot first and ask questions later. Uh, normally you can't do that. All of a sudden these trees started moving out of the way. They parted for me. And then I came out into this opening and there where I saw Jesus Christ. Broadcasting live from a secret location buried deep below the earth, you're about to make a connection to the signs of the times. W. Dean Shook is live on the air right now. Welcome into End Time News. I'm your host, W. Dean Shook, bringing you the news. Boy, and I'm happy to do it. And I'm going to start with some good stuff today. But before we do, I want to say welcome to everyone on the iHeartRadio network. Thank you, iHeart. And our internet connection, the Blog Talk Radio Network, the Spreaker Radio Network, and of course, all of our regular broadcast affiliates. Welcome to our international audience. You're all so very important, and I'm glad you're here. During today's program, we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to introduce you to somebody called the Unpleasant Blind Guy. And uh, he does some sound bites, and um, I talked to him briefly. He's going to allow me to play his conservative sound bites. So I'm going to uh, introduce you to the Unpleasant Blind Guy today in our uh, mid-show break. So you can look forward to that. He does a great job. Just like in Time News, he tells the truth. So you can look forward to that. And we're going to start our news with something that I think is really important for everybody to know, especially anybody that uses a computer, and it has to do with Windows 10. This is being reported by Newsweek. More than 14 million devices are already running Microsoft Windows 10. After its global launch on Wednesday, it's really unclear how many of their users read the company's privacy policy and service agreement before they download Windows 10. So if you have Windows 10 now, did you read the privacy policy? Well, tucked away in the 45 pages worth of terms and conditions, there is a substantial power grab. And not just a little bit. It is full of spyware. And I'm going to tell you about this. It's collecting data on everything you do while you use this new software. From the moment an account is created, Microsoft begins watching. The company saves your name, your contact details, your password, demographic data, credit card specifics, but also it digs a little bit deeper than that. From the moment an account is created, Microsoft starts collecting other information, including Bing search queries and conversations with the new digital personal assistant, Cortana, contents of private communications such as emails, websites, and apps visited, including features accessed at length of time of used and it collects contents of private folders furthermore 
your typed and handwritten words are collected, privacy statement says, which many online observers link to a keylogger, if you know what that is. Microsoft says that the data that they collect is to provide you with personalized user directory to help you type and write on your device with better character recognition and provide you with text suggestions based on what you type or write. All of that sounds pretty harmless, right? All of this information doesn't necessarily remain with Microsoft. The company says it uses the data to collect for three purposes. To provide and improve its service. To send customers personalized promotions. And to display targeted advertising, which sometimes requires the information to be shared with third parties. Microsoft mentions that though it assigns a customer a unique advertising ID, which is fed data during computer usage, it does not use what you say in email, chat, video, or voicemail, or your documents, photos, or other personal files to target ads to you. It makes no such promise for its other stated data collection purposes. Now remember, it's taken your personal files, they're watching your email, they're recording every stroke that you do, including your credit card numbers, your social security number, whatever you put on your computer, Microsoft is watching and recording it. And even though this might be surprising to some, the company's data collection practice fits within the industry's new normal. This is the new normal. Google's privacy terms, for instance, show that the tech giant is also analyzing the content of users' emails to provide a better, more personalized product. It claims, and as The Guardian points out, both Siri and Google now require access to the user's personal information to personalize responses. Now, while both Apple and Google offer developers the ability to deliver personalized ads to users based on information such as installed apps, also like its competitors, Microsoft says, it will disclose content of private communications or files in saved documents to respond to a valid legal process. So in the company's latest biannual transparency release in late March, it says that of the 31,000 government requests for information received between June and December of 2014, it disclosed content of personal communications in 3.3% of cases and non-data content in 73.17%. Now, while users are given the choice to opt out of Microsoft's data collection, critics claim that isn't enough. The Windows 10 upgrade experience strips the user of their choice by effectively overriding existing user preferences. This according to Chris Baird, CEO of the Missoula Corporation, that's a Microsoft competitor. It now takes more than twice the number of mouse clicks, scrolling through content and some technical sophistication for people to assert the choice they had previously made in earlier versions of Windows. Well, Microsoft may not share customers' every digital move with a third party, but some worry that hackers could steal this wealth of personal information for their own purposes. And Microsoft's response to these concerns is this. They say Microsoft is committed to protecting the security of your personal data. We store the personal data that you provide on computer systems that have limited access and are in controlled facilities. When we transmit highly confidential data, such as a credit card number or password, over the Internet, 
we protect it through encryption. So that right there, they're admitting that they're sending out your credit card information and your passwords. I think that's absolutely astonishing. Well, let's move on to some other news. I want to share a Breitbart report that says the U.S. is to engage Assad's military directly to defend U.S. trained rebels. Well, we know who these U.S. trained rebels are. According to Breitbart, U.S. officials announced Sunday that the Pentagon will defend American-trained Syrian rebels against attack from the Syrian armed forces. The military forces controlled by Bashir al-Assad's regime in Damascus. The decision is being interpreted as a departure from a limited strategy sought for the U.S. to retain a minimal footprint in this ongoing civil war. The Syrian rebels were trained by Washington to fight the Islamic State group, but ultimately remained a mortal enemy of the Assad regime due to their opposition to his rule. Well, the Wall Street Journal reports that the U.S. will continue to support rebels with offensive strikes against jihadi militant groups such as ISIS. The new strategy, however, will include defense support to protect rebels. In commenting on the report, White House National Security Spokesman said that the U.S. took the steps necessary to ensure that these forces could successfully carry out their mission. Overall, the United States has been largely unsuccessful in recruiting and training rebel fighters who are willing to remain independent of both the Islamic State and the Assad regime. Get this, just 60 individuals out of a year-end goal of 3,000 have finished the training program so far, according to the reports. An unnamed senior military official told the Wall Street Journal, For offensive purposes, it's ISIS only. But if attacked, we will defend them against anyone who attacks them. We're not looking to engage the regime, but we've made a commitment to help defend these people. While the new defensive air power strategy was reportedly first implemented on Friday, when U.S.-backed rebels came under fire from El Nursa Front, a closely affiliated group with Al-Qaeda. Why didn't we hear about this on the networks? Well, I think most people have heard that California now mandates vaccines without any exceptions. Well, the HPV vaccine mandated for all of Rhode Island middle school students is now in effect. Boy or girl, public schools or private school, if the Rhode Island child is middle school aged, it's now mandatory to receive a human papillomavirus vaccine. The vaccine would most likely be a Gardasil shot made by Merck studied for less than two years in about 1,200 children under age 16 before it came licensed and fast-tracked to the FDA. Consequently, the vaccine is currently under investigation by European Medicine Agency, but apparently it's turning out to be a pretty weak investigation. This proves once and for all how the side effects of multi-trillion dollar pharmaceutical companies with bottomless salaries toward propagandists plus bloated lawmakers and government agencies, how this is actually a, a dangerous form of insanity. Forced injections of chemical cocktails that have proven to be deadly in teenagers might have been recognized as child endangerment in the past. Now it's just par for the course since the passing of California's SB 277, which mandates vaccines for all students. Rhode Island is just following suit, which is precisely why parents tried to stop SB 277. If some vaccines are mandated, 
what if all of them are thrown into the mix, including a couple hundred that are still in the pipeline? And parents lose all control to decide when or if their child gets this vaccine. As neuropath Roseanne Lindsay recently wrote, she said in June, California became the first state to mandate vaccines for all children attending public or private school. Similar mandates will apply to all adults working in daycare centers. There's currently 58 bills in 24 states that would limit your right when it comes to vaccines or lose your job. A proposed federal law will attempt to vaccinate the entire nation. The Associated Press has reported that starting this coming school year, middle school students must receive the vaccine unless they have a medical or religious exemption. However, both are very difficult to obtain. Tricia Washburn, chief of the Office of Immunization for the Rhode Island Department of Health, said the Center for Disease Control found no safety concerns with the vaccine. The bottom line is that HPV is the most sexually transmitted disease in the U.S., she said. We are interested in protecting the public health. We feel it shouldn't be treated any differently than any other vaccines recommended by the CDC. And they're standing behind that. However, D.C. Clothesline is reporting this. The CDC had destroyed vaccine documents. This according to a congressman on June 29th. U.S. Congressman Bill Posey made his last stand on the floor of the House, granted five minutes to speak, he laid bare the lying of the CDC in a now-famous 2004 study that exonerated the MMR vaccine and claimed it had no connection to autism. No connection to autism here was the lie. Congressman Posey read a statement from a longtime CDC researcher, William Thompson, one of the authors of the 2004 pediatric study that was designed to determine once and for all whether the mumps measles rubella vaccine could cause autism. Thompson saw and participated in violating the protocol of the study. He was there. He helped his co-authors destroy the documents that would have shown that the MMR autism had a link. And you can see a rushed transcript of Congressman Posey's remarks at ageoffascism.com, which includes his reading of a statement from the whistleblower Thompson. Posey pleads with his colleagues for a congressional investigation. He said, of note, two of the CDC researchers on the infamous 2004 study, who, according to Thompson, destroyed vital documents, are Colleen Boyle and Frank Stefano. They're both high-ranking executives at the CDC in the area of vaccine safety. This calls into question every single CDC study under the entire tenure of these people that claim vaccines are safe. CDC whistleblower Thompson's statement with Posey read on the House floor includes this bombshell. Here's what he said. However, because Thompson assumed that destroying the documents was illegal and would violate both the FOIA and the DOJ requests, I kept hard copies of all documents in my office. I retained all associated computer files. I believe we intentionally withheld controversial findings from the final draft of the pediatrics report. Thompson has the smoking gun documents. So does Congressman Posey, and I believe others do too. So publish them. That's what I say, publish them now. There's lawsuits to be filed. 
11 years have passed since the CDC committed its crime of concealing the MMR vaccine collection. How many parents, never informed of the truth, have permitted their children to receive this vaccine? How many children have been struck down by these vaccines? The lawsuit should be filed against the CDC and the individual authors of this 2004 study. Lawyers must depose every CDC employee who had knowledge of the crime. And what about the fact that the MMR vaccine is one of the shots that's been mandated by law in California and in other states, also in Australia? Mandating neurological destruction of children is a crime that has to be investigated and punished. If these states and other countries insist on keeping this MMR vaccine on their schedules, they're guilty parties. Understand what we're dealing with here. In terms of public exposure, the author of a peer-reviewed and published study, the author who has worked for many years at the CDC, the author who participated in the destruction of vital documents, the author has come forward and admitted his crime and the crime of his colleagues. This kind of confession just never happens, but it did happen. And this story and what it means must not die, no matter how major media outlets try to spin it or ignore it. Parents who are in ignorance allowing their children to receive the MMR vaccine have to be informed about this. They must know what's going on. They must know the danger to their children. Canada, Australia, England, New Zealand, Germany, France, India, China, South Africa, wherever the MMR vaccine is given, parents must be made aware that they're gambling with their children's lives. Government officials everywhere in the world who make this continuing crime possible are liable. So are the manufacturers of the MMR and the CDC. This is a crime. And it's not just in other countries. You know, the most evil government in history is our government today. America is not a great nation. It hasn't been for a long time. Any government that gives hundreds of millions of dollars each year to an organization that systematically murders babies, harvests their internal organs, ships them off to laboratory where they're used in ex experiments can hardly be called great. Back in the 1980s, Ronald Reagan referred to the Soviet Union as the evil empire. But today, it's the Russians that are calling us evil and godless. And you know what? When Vladimir Putin called us godless, he was right. He was 100% correct. Someday, when history judges us, we will fully deserve to be mentioned in the same breath as Stalin's Russia, Mao's China, and Hitler's Germany. Our consciences have been so seared that we have absolutely no reason of perspective anymore. We get all bent out of shape over the killing of Cecil the Lion, but the trafficking of the body parts and internal organs of millions of our own babies hardly gets a reaction at all. And the Democrats are standing up and blocking anything that, that will stop it. Yeah, the killing of that lion in Zimbabwe was a horrible crime, and I hope the dentist is held accountable for it. But how can that possibly compare to the absolutely sickening crimes against humanity that are being committed by Planned Parenthood every single day? How can anybody stick up for them? How can they allow our tax money to fund that? 
And what about the Nazi-like atrocities that are being carried out every day with the full endorsement of, and not only the Obama administration, but every Democrat and Republican since Roe versus Wade? The Obama administration has stated it will veto any bill passed by Congress to defund Planned Parenthood. The Justice Department has already announced that it's going to conduct a formal investigation of the Center for Medical Progress. And of course, the Obama administration and Congress have already known for years that Planned Parenthood was selling the body parts of dead babies. So this is nothing new. It's just that these new undercover videos have brought the issue into the spotlight. And the Republicans are far from innocent on this. George W. Bush was in the White House when the Republicans had control of Congress. There was no effort to try to defund Planned Parenthood, even though they knew this was going on. But Obama has taken things to a whole new level. He seems to revel in all of this evil. According to CNS News, the president of Planned Parenthood had actually made 39 visits to the White House since Obama took power. Sadly, the truth is, our politicians are a reflection of who we have become as a nation. The reason why we have evil leaders is because America has become evil. Back in World War II, we fought to rid the world of the Nazis, but now we're becoming, slowly but surely, just the same as them. And shortly, we're going to be moving into a time when lots of really bad things are going to start happening to this nation. We need to be aware of what we're doing. And let's talk about the economy. How about the housing bubble 2.0? Because some things never change. This is being reported by the Daily Sheeple. While this is a national problem, it's especially bad in America's major metropolitan areas. You can't buy a house out there without selling your children into slavery and forget about rent. In places like Oakland, arguably one of the crappiest cities in America, the rent has doubled in the span of five years to an average of, get this, $2,800 a month. The cost of shelter has surpassed the ridiculous heights of the last housing crash. The average wage earner in California can neither afford to buy or rent. And yet, the bubble continues to grow. And where it ends, nobody knows. Because recently, in Venice, California... Someone had the gall to place a 714-square-foot house on the market for $1.1 million. 714-square-foot house. This same house sold for $450,000 in 2010, $30,000 in 1982. And inflation doesn't have anything on the housing bubble. So who could forget the man? who half-jokingly placed an ad to rent out a tent in his backyard in Mountain View, California. He managed to get an offer for almost $1,000 a month for a tent in his backyard. The one that really takes the cake for me was a small house in San Francisco. It was recently contracted for just over a million dollars. There was only one small problem with the place, though. Located in the city's Richmond district, a fairly desirable neighborhood, the home has one very undesirable flaw. In April of this year, the mummified corpse of the former owner was found inside wrapped in a blanket. The woman, named Anna Regine, was reportedly died five years earlier, but the 65-year-old daughter hadn't told anyone that her mother's body was still in the home. The home is apparently in a very sorry state. 
According to a piece written by Bob Calhoun for SF Weekly, a fresh coat of paint on the walls and scrubbed floors couldn't quite chase away the smell of toxic mold and urine from the corners of the bedroom and the kitchen. When you're not in the housing bubble, those kinds of houses don't sell very well, or at all in some cases. The stigma of a house that had mummified corpse in it is enough to keep most buyers away. And that's without it smelling like pee or mold. But in a market like this, you take what you can get. It's gotten so bad that some people are trying to get creative with their housing. Luke Eisman, 31 leased a 17,000 square foot warehouse in Oakland and has built 11 micro residents out of cargo containers. This according to Bloomberg. He charges $1,000 a month for each of the makeshift homes, which aren't legal, strictly speaking. Iceman and his Cargotopia has been chased from two other locations by authorities, but that hasn't dampened his spirit. He told Bloomberg, I'm not making much money yet, but it allows us to live in the Bay Area, which is a feat. We have an opportunity here to create a new model for urban development that's more sustainable and more affordable and more enjoyable living in a shipping container. On Iceman's warehouse, he lays out the Cargotopia Manifesto. He said, we're living in a solar-powered, sustainable home that we built for less the cost of a car. Chickens in the yard, fast internet, providing affordable homes for our friends. It's getting harder and harder to consider our sustainability a sacrifice. Isn't it interesting that if you try to live self-sufficiently and within your means, you get chased off by the authorities. That's the real tragedy of the housing bubble. You can't look at the absurd housing prices and say, screw that, I'd rather live in a steel hut. After all, terrible houses still sell for mansion prices. Why not pay less for less? Unfortunately, there aren't a whole lot of options out there that won't get you into trouble. You can either sell your organs to live in a shack or you can go homeless. There's really no in-between. Obviously, none of this is sustainable. The bubble was largely fueled by the Fed's money rain, which means the market is flooded with flatted dollars while housing prices have soared, wages are stagnant, homeowner rates have fallen to record lows. It's only a matter of time before the housing market crashes again. And just like clockwork, all of those people who bought houses over the last few years will be just as shocked and bewildered as they were in 2008. Some things never change. They're going to be on TV saying, how did we see this possibly coming? Well, yeah, how did we possibly do that? Well, I'm going to take a short break here, but when we come back, we're going to talk about this wonderful gift that Obama has given the illegals and what would happen if Trump actually did run as a third party. And will 2015 be known as the year that Congress gives up? But before we come back to do those stories, we're going to debut the conservative fight by the unpleasant blind guy right here, right now. I'll be back right after this break. You're listening to End Time News. GoDaddy offers everything you need to make a name for yourself on the web, from domain names and website builders to complete e-commerce solutions. We've earned our place as the world's number one accredited domain registrar by delivering world-class products at competitive prices and support them with industry-best services delivered 24-7, 365. We're proud to serve our customers from locations around the world. Sign up now at wdstrip.com and get your domain name as low as $5.99 a year. 
Sign up now at WDeanShook.com. Go, Daddy. Go, Daddy. blind guy conservative bite I like progressives yeah that's right I said it I like them because they want to see the homeless housed the hungry fed and the sick healed everyone wants those things so that's very laudable where you begin having problems though progressives is when your leaders prove that they care more about their own power and money than they do about the people they claim to champion and when their irritating, yap-barky, ankle-bitey lapdogs in establishment media display the kind of hypocrisy that makes anyone with two brain cells to rub together turn away from them and towards the new mainstream media. Now we all remember the article written in Salon on June the 18th by Chauncey de Vega with the title, Charleston Church Massacre, The Violence White America must answer for. Well, that was June 18th. Not quite a month later, on July the 17th, Sean Illing, yeah, he's Ellen, all right, posted an article in Salon titled, Bobby Jindal Should Just Shut Up. His simple-minded, dishonest Chattanooga comments make things worse. In the June 18th article, De Vega, held every white person in the United States of America responsible for the act of one racist a-hole. It wasn't about the fact that the Charleston shooter himself was responsible for his own racist attitude and his own actions. It was about saying, in effect, that every white person had to look themselves in the mirror and admit that they were the problem, that they were responsible. It was an unapologetic, blanket condemnation of every white person in the United States of America. A month later, Governor Bobby Jindal said in an interview with Breitbart, It's time for the White House to wake up and tell the truth. 
And the truth is that radical Islam is at war with us, and we must start by being honest about that. There have been many bad things that have happened under President Obama. One that stands out to me was the horrible shooting at Fort Hood, which was clearly an act of terrorism by a radical Islamist. Yet, the White House labeled that horrible act as workplace violence. This is grotesque. You cannot defeat evil until you admit that it exists. Now, Mr. Ellen called that statement trite. Bobby Jindal said, What's not acceptable is people that want to come and conquer us. That's not immigration, by the way. That's colonization. And Mr. Ellen called that statement preposterously stupid. But the best line in Mr. Ellen's article is where he writes, Exaggerating every isolated attack into an apocalyptic threat plays perfectly into the enemy's narrative. Now there are two things happening with that line. The first is the standard progressive narrative that somehow Islamic terrorism is the fault of someone else. It's almost always an isolated incident that has nothing to do with Islam. And the other thing is that that line points out the breathtaking hypocrisy of Salon itself. In June, every white person is responsible for the Charleston shooting. In July, the horrific attack on our military personnel by a Muslim terrorist is the responsibility of that individual only. You see, progressives, admire your sentiments about the poor as much as I do. Your leaders and their establishment media butt-cleaners can never seal the deal with me because they have a problem with telling the truth. Dylan Roof was a racist who committed a horrible act and must pay the ultimate penalty. Muhammad Poopbag Aziz was inspired by an ideology that wants to replace civilization with Sharia. The evidence is there for everyone to see. In the month of Ramadan, Islam inspired 314 terror attacks, 63 suicide bombings. Those resulted in 2,988 dead and 3,696 injured. My progressive friends, may I humbly suggest that if you want to draw more people to your cause, you begin to address the hypocrisy within your own leader's servants that blames all white people for the evil of one racist one month and refuses to recognize that Islam has inspired its followers to inflict so much death and pain in the next. This has been an Unpleasant Blind Guy Conservative Fight. And thank you to the Unpleasant Blind Guy. We can look forward to hearing more from him in the future, for his unpleasantness was actually kind of refreshing. So I'll say thank you for that. So let's talk about this uh, massive gift that Mr. Obama is giving our illegals. This is reported by WND. It's an exclusive. The level of health care provided to illegal aliens is about to get a huge boost from the Obama administration. Are you surprised? Well, they're hiring contractors to provide the equivalent of 5.5 million additional labor hours of treatment to detainees. U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE, 
Department of Homeland Security did not provide an estimated cost to these support services over five years. It's leaving it up to the vendors to propose how much it's going to cost. All of the treatment will come from workers who are screened to be, of course, politically correct. That means contractor employees working on this project must meet the U.S. citizenship except when special flights prohibit use of U.S. citizens. The contractors are expected to recruit personnel who have demonstrated work experience in a diverse, multicultural, and multilanguage environment. Ongoing training must include how to communicate effectively and professionally with detainees, including lesbians, gays, bisexual, transgender, intersex, and gender non-conforming detainees. Private vendors shall deliver a combination of medical, dental, and mental health services, plus administrative staffing and nursing support specific to the ICE Health Services Corp., or the IHSC, which already employs more than 900 employees. And an exhaustive search of the FedBiz Op system revealed no IHSC healthcare support activities of this magnitude in ICE's history. The ICE unit notes that annually it offers direct care to about 15,000 detainees housed at 21 facilities nationwide, as well as to overseas medical care of 17,000 additional detainees and non-IHSC detainee facilities. This IHSC also provides medical support during ICE enforcement operations in the air, on the ground, and at sea. According to the 505-page solicitation, with statements of work on how SOW, the overall ICE population amounts, of 34,000 daily and 400,000 annual detainees with an average of a 30-day stay. I assume that's before they're released into our population. The document spells out in great detail what is expected in terms of contractor quality assurance, standards of conduct, monitoring of personnel, training, and other federal requirements. Although the SOW includes restrictions in intersex, male-to-female, female-to-male, pat-downs, and physical searches, it simultaneously prohibits ICE and other contractors from insisting that detainees disclose their gender. The policy of allowing detainees to state their gender, even if it's contrary to the anatomical fact and medical assessment, follows the directive of a recent ICE memorandum entitled Further Guidance Regarding the Care of Transgender and Detainees, which was made available by the American Thinker. Now, according to ICE, during 2012, which is the latest period for ICE information, the following number of types of health care services are provided. Intake screenings, 220,574. Physical exams, 104,650. Sick calls, 137,561. Urgent care visits, 16,201. Emergency room off-site referrals, 13,503. Dental visits are 34,754. Mental health interventions, 54,969. Here's the one that got me. Chronic disease interventions, 135,757. 
chronic disease interventions. They're allowing people into the United States who have chronic diseases, and then you and I, the taxpayer, are paying to treat these chronic conditions. Prescriptions filled? 327,179. Now, for anybody who gets a prescription, especially if you have to pay out of pocket, you know how much a prescription can cost. It, it can go into the hundreds. And these detainees have got, at taxpayer expense, 327,179 prescriptions filled. Thank you, American taxpayer. In a typical day, the IHSC provides over 600 health screenings a day, approximately 300 physical exams a day, over 400 sick calls and urgent care visits a day. Well, there may be a solution for this, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. But before we do, I want to consider something a little different here about the upcoming election. And that is, what if Trump decides to run as a third party? And the reason I'm bringing this up is because there was uh, really a, a question that jumped out at me on this. Well, let's, let's see what this says. Let me read the Breitbart report to you, and then we'll talk about this. Just moments after last fall's midterm elections, Pew Research found the approval ratings for both Democrats and Republicans sank below 35%, while at the same time, nearly 40% of the electorate identified as political independent, a record high. If the American people don't like the Democrats or the GOP, the ballot box equivalent of Coke and Pepsi, according to public opinion, why hasn't... A third party, which would be a 7-up equivalent, in the form of a third party, captured more of the voting market. Now keep in mind, socialist Bernie Sanders, a libertarian Rand Paul, and Tea Partier Ted Cruz are official candidates in the 2016 presidential campaign, yet Sanders, Paul, and Cruz are considered mainstream. And they're considered credible because they're competing under the Democrat and Republican Party banners for practical reasons. Or so the establishment media tells us. Still, without democratic social upheaval or outright revolution, analysts say a viable third party probably couldn't stand on its own and attract enough voters to threaten the Democrats or the GOP. That means entrenched political institutions like the two-party system are nearly impossible to change, even if we think they're broken. Well, this is what they're telling us, and people accept that because that's what they're being told, that the professional politicians will go to any lengths to protect the status quo. And as we've seen with the last midterm elections, it doesn't matter who you put in office, Democrat or Republican, nothing changes. Why? Because we elect the status quo. That's what we get. Business as usual. Nothing in America is going to change as long as both Democrats and Republicans do the same things. The incentive structure and the geographical and ideological polarization of these two parties is exactly what George Washington worried about when he wrote his farewell address. And the leaders of our country's two political parties don't give diddly squat about the people on Main Street, except when it comes time for those parties to go to the polls. This is part of what happens when a country morphs into an inverted totalitarian society. Here's the facts. Contrary to the talking points and press releases being pumped out by the alphabet networks, Americans are still 40% poorer than they were during the Great Recession. Most people still feel that American dream is out of reach. People can't afford to rent a house, let alone buy it. 
Real median house income is still 6.2% less than it was at the start of the Great Recession and 6.9% below what it was at the beginning of the year 2000. I have a clip here. I want you to listen to what Trump said when Rice Priebus asked everyone to pledge not to run as a third party. Listen to this clip. Last question, very quickly. Rice Priebus, chairman of the party, has said that all candidates should pledge not to run as a third party if they don't win the nomination. Will you take that pledge this morning? Will you pledge not to run as a third party candidate? I will tell you this. I am leading in every poll, and in some cases by a tremendous margin, and people are a little bit surprised, but I'm not surprised. And people that know me aren't surprised because they see what's going on with this country. If I'm treated fairly by, and, and don't win, but if I'm treated fairly by the Republican Party, I would have no interest in doing that. If I am not treated fairly by the Republican Party, I very well might consider that, and I would certainly not give that up. Okay, Donald Trump, thank you for joining us. Okay, thank you very much. So when he said this, he was asking politicians not to upset the status quo, maintain the business as usual. Well, let me share a WND article I found. It states correctly that the Washington elite in recent weeks have destroyed traditional marriage across America. They've redefined English words to save Obamacare. They've proposed regulations that would put your backyard under inspections by the EPA. And they've pulled off a deal critics say will grant the rogue Islamic State Iran nuclear weapons and more. And this list goes on and on. So how would you like to see a process to reverse these conditions? To tell Washington exactly what they're going to do. Officials with Convention of States Project of the Citizens for Self-Government say the U.S. Constitution already provides a solution that gives the U.S. citizens a way to bypass Congress to decide what direction the nation's going to go, then announce marching orders. And we need to fix Washington so that these deficit budgets are a thing of the past, so that Washington's interference in local school board curriculum is gone, so that those orders for you to buy the health insurance that Washington bureaucrats think you need no longer exists so that a federal government who's drunk with the abuse of power could be finally reined in. Article 5 of the Constitution provides for a convention of states which can amend the U.S. Constitution, for example, by demanding a balanced budget or simply removing the issue of marriage from the jurisdiction of the courts, and we could do that, or how eliminating the Federal Department of Education entirely How about a different tax system where we could effectively eliminate the IRS? The article is an alternative to having Congress proposed amendments. It allows that those changes also can be proposed. They've had to be ratified by three-fourths of the state on the application legislatures of two-thirds of several states could invoke this convention. The Conventions of State website explains that the founders provided the alternative through which the states can stop the federal spending and debt spree. They can stop the power grab of the federal courts and other misuses of power. We the people have the power to do that. Our current situation is precisely what the founding fathers feared. They gave us a solution and we have a duty to use it. Senator Tom Coburn, who represented Oklahoma in the U.S. Senate before leaving just recently, said the convention has become a necessity because of Washington's perpetual overreach. We won't fix it any other way. He told WND, Washington will never give up its power. 
It takes more every single year. Even though the bureaucrats, branch, or others, through the court system, they're taking power away from the people every single day. Now, while Coburn was in office, he identified $400 billion in unnecessary spending every year. But he couldn't eliminate it because those in Congress who were not about to deprive their own constituents. It's a catastrophe, he told WND. The only way to do it is a convention of states. Mark Mettler, president of the Citizens of Self-Government, told WND, We clearly have a runaway presidency and a Congress that has no spine. The convention, he said, is the only mechanism for Americans to rein in religious freedom, empower states with the rights given to them in the Constitution, and more. He said the current plan is to bring together representatives of the states to consider these issues. Fiscal restraints on the federal government, the imposition of limits of the scope and jurisdiction of the federal government, and the term limits for federal officials, including members of the U.S. Supreme Court. I know some people disagree with that, but we have to do something. The actual practical portions of this plan could be the elimination of the Department of Education, the Department of Energy, and ultimately the IRS. States could define that federal government has no role in education. They could also determine that millions of pages of federal rules imposing requirements that Congress authorize each year to be eliminated. Coburn says the requirements are straightforward. At least two-thirds of the states, 34 of them, must approve identical resolutions calling for the convention. After that, Congress, which cannot stop the plan, must arrange for the particulars. Four states have already passed the resolutions. It's been introduced in a dozen more already this year. The goal, he said, is to return the federal government to the few dozen powers specifically given to the government in the Constitution. The rest of the responsibilities are supposed to rest with the states and their populations, not the federal government. Our founders intended that the laboratories of democracy, the states, to work these things out for themselves. Meckler said some big names have endorsed the idea from Mark Levin, Sean Hannity, Alan West, me, Mike Huckabee, Bobby Jindal. He warned that there are literally is no other mechanism to restrain Washington. But hope springs, since there are already developed support for the plan from 97% of the state legislative districts from coast to coast. The organization announced the draft rules for the Convention of States were revealed recently to several hundred state lawmakers meeting in San Diego. The legislatures, along with more all across the nation, have been invited to participate in the Convention of State Caucus, he said. With that move, it's advanced beyond what any other group has ever done to support a convention. While other groups have talked about proposing rules, we're the only ones who actually took action, produced a working draft, and we already have 119 charter members signed on to help review and revise and then announce. The project was launched by Meckler and Michael Ferris, who also is Chancellor of Patrick Henry College and Chairman of the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. Sarah Palin has endorsed the move, pointing out that it's the tool that people have to rein in government. Bobby Jindal said overspending, excessive regulatory overreach, disdain for individual liberty all run rampant in Washington, D.C. Luckily, the founders gave us a mechanism to reform in a runaway government. We can and we must scale back the monstrosity of federal government has become. 
Huckabee said the plan is both innovative and realistic. According to the Jefferson Statement, which was adopted just about a year ago in Washington by former members of the Reagan administration, seasoned Supreme Court legislator, Ivy League prosecutors, and more, the national leaders, believe that Article 5 procedure is the only constitutional effective means of fixing this nation. Without that, it's run amok. Their statement said, We share the Founders' conviction that proper decision-making structures are essential to preserve liberty. We believe that the problems facing our nation require several structural limitations on the exercise of federal power. While fiscal restraints are essential, we believe the most effective course is to pursue reasonable limitations fully in line with the vision of our founders on the federal government. Here are the facts about a convention of state. Please listen to this clip. Do you agree Washington is dysfunctional? Oh, yeah. Okay, so... But, but it doesn't matter which party's in charge. I, I spent 10 years up here in the Senate and left early because I don't see a solution in the U.S. Senate and the U.S. Congress to fix what's wrong with our country. The federal government's out of control. Everyone knows that. We are unmoored from the rule of law. And if you look at history, all republics eventually fail over the same thing. Runaway expenses, a bloated government and bureaucracy, too many federal regulations. Now it's like we're on iron rails and unless we do something, then we're going down path. They're 18 trillion in debt. Every child born in the United States now owes over $50,000 the minute they're born. If you have one out of control Supreme Court, one out of control Congress, and one out of control president, there's nowhere to go. And that's the problem, unless we go back to the Constitution to save the Constitution. So what are we going to do about it? Now the biggest tool in the box is this Article 5. We've had 27 amendments to the Constitution passed, but none have passed the other way that Article 5 calls for. But the founders added a fail-safe in case of an out-of-control federal government that allows the states to draft and approve amendments. The founders put this in there and said in case it ever goes awry, the states can get together. Our founders actually, in their wisdom, they gave us a constitutional way to address this. This is the method the Constitution gives the states to try to rein in the federal government. There are a bunch of us who are coming together to make this happen. I want to help rein in a federal government that's running amok. The only way we're going to save this republic, I believe, is to get about the process of the states regaining and recontrolling the federal government because it is the states that created the federal government. It is the states that must control it. The only way the federal government is going to be reined in and that we are going to preserve the United States of America for our kids and our grandkids is as states. A balanced budget amendment, tax limitations, spending limitations, term limits on Congress, curtailing the power of the Supreme Court. It gives me a future and it gives me a hope. I don't care if no senator or no member of Congress supports this. We bypass them. It is our duty to use Article 5. We have to stand up for ourselves. And the way we stand up for ourselves is in the state legislatures. One at a time, patiently but aggressively, we take back our country. Convention of States. It is time. So you see, this is very much possible. 
The only problem that we really have is that there's a segment of the population who are legitimately fit the bill of being called sheeple. These are people that just have no clue about anything. I want to play you another clip here. Now, be patient with this. This is a reporter from Prison Planet who's asking Hillary supporters if they support the idea to abolish the Bill of Rights to promote the agenda of the New World Order. And for those of you who are progressive or believe in this stuff, I have inserted in the background a translation of what they're saying just for the sheeple. Listen to this clip. One of Hillary Clinton's primary campaign promises is to repeal the Bill of Rights to help with the New World Order. Do you think it's time we get behind her and support the repeal? I think it is. I think we need change like they've been promising us for so many years. I think it's time to get behind Hillary Clinton and do support her repeal. And support her. Yes, I really do. They're just too old. I think 200 years old. You can't you can't have the, the, the rules of yesteryear. Now, Those we're, freedoms we're, are just so outdated. It's so much has changed. So much has changed. People have changed. There's just we're, we're just, we live in a different we're world just now. Checking to see if the Hillary Clinton supporters uh, support the plan to repeal the bill. I support it. Support I support it. Okay. I sure do. Thank you. Have a good day. Her plan to repeal the Bill of Rights. About time we do that for her. I think it's a good time to look at it for good sure. Good time to look at repealing the Bill of Rights for Hillary. Good time to look at it. All yeah. right. Hillary Clinton's primary campaign platform is to uh, repeal the Bill of Rights, to move America forward. Do you think that's a good campaign promise? Do you think that we should get behind her, regardless of what political party you're with, to support the repeal of the Bill of Rights? I do. I think so. Obviously, you're Hillary. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm stuck in between. I'm a, I'm a little Democrat, and I'm a little Republican. I, I'm not the extreme of either or. So. But you do support Hillary Clinton? I do. And so you, you support the plan to repeal the Bill of Rights, her, yes. her big promise to move America forward? Yes. Just checking. We're just interviewing Hillary Clinton supporters to see if, if they agree with her primary campaign platform of repealing the Bill of Rights. So you do support that? I do. All right. Thank you very much. You're welcome. One of Hillary's primary campaign promises is to repeal the Bill of Rights to help out with the New World Order. Do you think it's time, should we get over bipartisan differences and support Hillary Clinton's plan to repeal the Bill of Rights? Honestly, I'm not sure. I haven't been following lately. you think Hillary Clinton has the right idea to repeal the Bill of Rights to help with the New World Order? Possibly. Do you think it's time maybe we support that? Yeah. Might as well. Let everyone do their own. A little bit too old, I guess. Somewhat outdated. One of Hillary Clinton's primary campaign promises is to repeal the Bill of Rights to help progress the New World Order. You think it's time we get on board with her and, and repeal the Bill of Rights to help America progress? Sure, I do. I have nothing more to say. Nothing more to no, say. I don't talk politics. Ask her. What do you think about Hillary's campaign to repeal the Bill of Rights? Do you think it's time we do that to progress society forward? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Do you think it's time to get over partisan differences and support Hillary Clinton's plan to repeal the Bill of Rights? Um, I don't know. I really don't have an opinion with it. It could be good, it could be bad. You're just not sure? Yeah, kind of go both ways depending on what exactly they're doing. Repealing the Bill of Rights could be good or it could be bad. Yes, I know. I'm in the middle. Yeah. (laughs)
You probably saw one of Hillary Clinton's primary campaign promises is to repeal the Bill of Rights. I think it's time we continue with the progressive agenda and support Hillary's campaign to repeal the Bill of Rights? Well, you know what? I absolutely think uh, I have a unorthodox way of thinking when it comes to politics. Uh -huh. And I agree with a lot of Hillary's policies. And I do agree with repealing uh, the Bill of Rights, not entirely, but some of it does need to be repealed. But I'm a, a pro-black person, uh -huh. so I come from an aspect, a political aspect that relies on justice and the, for the Bill of Rights people. And some of the Bill of Rights should be, should uh, be repealed, repealed and which restructured. Which ones specifically? Well, I'll, I'll tell you, uh, specifically, I'd have to recall it through research, but the ones that are relating to uh, just injustices to the blacks, a lot of them, they say, they, they, offer, they, they offer assistance to blacks in certain ways in the political aspect, but they don't... So the Bill of Rights are, are, the Bill of Rights are a little racist, is what you're saying? Not necessarily racist, they're just unjust. So, Bill of Rights are unjust. Yeah, some of them, not all. What some do you think, maybe 50 percent of them? No, I would say probably a third. A third of the Bill of Rights yeah. unjust. But this is just coming from a guess, you know, from yeah. the, actually you having more research on the Bill of Rights. Do a little research and can get more particular. But okay. Yeah, that, that's an honest opinion. An honest know, opinion okay. about the Bill of Rights. What difference at this point does it make? You know, that's really not too far off the mark. And uh, I need to ask the question, will 2015 go down as the year that Congress gave up? Well, this is what NetRight Daily is saying. They're saying Congress gave up some of the most important legislative powers. Or at least this year it was confirmed that Congress's powers are not what they used to be. President Obama's executive amnesty granting illegal status to millions of immigrants with children who were born in the U.S. is a good example. In 2014, congressional Republicans campaigned on the issue of promising to roll it back. And they were granted majorities in the House and Senate, and they won. Homeland Security funding was even separated from this omnibus so that every fight could be laid in 2015 with the new majorities. You remember that? But when push came to shove, Congress relented. They gave funding to Homeland Security without any strings attached. Thus, they granted the taxpayer dollars to carry out Obama's amnesty program. Did opposite of just exactly what they said they were going to do. Then there was the Iran deal. Members of Congress say they now oppose it, but why didn't they wait for Obama to reveal the details before they passed H.R. 1191? That legislation by Bob Corcoran, Republican from Tennessee, was passed on May, gave Obama all the authority he needed to lift sanctions against Iran's nuclear program. The law provides that any measure of statutory sanctions relief by the United States pursuant to an agreement with Iran may be taken. And that's exactly what they did. They started releasing funds back to Iran before the deal was even made. In other words, the Iran nuclear deal was pre-approved before anyone could read it. And Congress wanted to pretend that it would be voting against it after it was revealed. Well, give me a break. Naturally, Obama promised to veto any kind of resolution of disapproval. 150 House Democrats signed in May that they will be voting to sustain such a veto. The Senate would have treated the nuclear deal as a treaty and subjected it to that level of scrutiny. 
including the constitutionally required two-thirds majority of present senators to ratify it. Instead, Congress ceded to the Senate's treaty power. Now, apologists say this is nothing new, and indeed it isn't. Presidents have been entering into legally binding executive agreements with foreign nations for decades. That's true. The United States versus Belmont, 1937. The Supreme Court found that international compacts, even ones that are not treaties, including executive agreements and thus were not approved by two-thirds of the Senate, were the supreme law of the land. And that opinion was written by Justice George Sutherland in the Court's majority opinion. And while the rule in respect of treaties is established by the express language of Clause 2 of Article 6 of the Constitution, the same rule would result in the case of international compacts and agreements from the very fact that complete power over international affairs is in the national government and cannot be subject to any curtailment or interference on the part of several states. The question was whether an executive agreement with the Soviet Union that was never ratified by the Senate trumped the law, invoking the Supremacy Clause. In that case, it did. That was the decision that obliterated the Treaty Clause. Now, Senate ratification is optional. Next, there was legislation granting trade authority to Obama to negotiate the Trans-Pacific Partnership. That's the global agreement between the U.S. and Australia and Canada, Chile, Japan, Mexico, New Zealand, Singapore, and other countries. Now, don't tell me trade deals are not treaties, too. In 1975, Supreme Court Chief Justice John Jay negotiated a commercial treaty with Great Britain, the Treaty of Amity, Commerce and Navigation. Between His Britannic Majesty and the United States of America, it was put to the Senate for ratification by this two-thirds vote, which eventually came on June 24th of 1795. Yet... With the trade authority legislation, Obama gets to submit the final agreement to Congress for approval by simple majority of both chambers instead of two-thirds treaty ratification vote in the Senate. And of course, like executive agreements, this sort of executive congressional agreement is nothing new thanks to the Trade Act of 1974, which created an entirely new method of creating trade accords. Now the House and Senate authorized the president to negotiate trade deals. And then they're adopted by the House and Senate on an expedited basis, so-called fast-track legislation. Tell me we don't need a convention of the states. My goodness. Well, thank you for being here. This is W. Dean Shook in End Time News. And as usual, when the dust settles and the smoke clears, I'll be back with more truth in the news you can get these full stories on our website, wdeanshook.com. My email is contact at wdeanshook.com. I'll see you on our next episode. Thank you. You can get these full stories and more at wdeanshook.com. That's wdeanshook.com.